0: Gaza. Uh, I just wanted to say, then, you know, you lived it, you breathed it. I thought your piece in the book captured it. You created the sound that was. It was the soundtrack. It happened fast. You know, I I got here in 1979, or like early January '79, and it was like for me having experienced the scene in New York City when i got here it was like a brush fire it was just happening really fast it already uh, obviously had started by the time i got here but it was an amazing experience for me and in the in the chapter that i wrote uh it was my experiences of coming from New York City which was pretty much elitist. I mean, in New York City it was always well it was the velvet underground and the New York Dolls and can anybody top that? Well, the Ramones and some others managed to. And but there was like the elitist the elitism was always there. People would roll up in you know to the clubs and cabs. When I got to Los Angeles everybody was on the street trying to find parking spots together and it it just felt more communal here. It lacked it lacked the snobbery of New York city as much as I love New York and I'd love the music, but it felt, it felt different in so many ways like that. And it was a lot more fun. I thought it was inclusive. Um, and it was away from, you know, the radar of the intelligentsia that controls taste. And I think that the Los Angeles music was able to really take root, um, in a fresher way. Um, and that's, that's kind of like how my love affair started with it. It was, it was pretty instant. And, uh, and I thought your chapter, because you you know, you started earlier in the seventies, uh, and how you kind of like set the stage, you know, you talk about the eyes, like, you know, the, the first Charlotte Cathy band and that was who else, who else was in that Joe Ramirez?
1: Joe Ramirez and also Don Bonebreak. uh, who went on to become the drummer of X and also a marimba player?
0: Wow! So that was there, and so you know, you know, I pretty much as you capture it there, uh, there was every everything was popping up. There were studios, uh, the the clubs. It was fast. Like I never got to the original Mask. I came too late for that. But I remember in '79 there was a spin-off mask um it was at the corner of Santa Monica and Vine if i remember i went to that right i, I did i did get a taste of that and then years ago i did the publicity uh through Exine for the live from the mask i think it was a 3 cd um set live set and uh, oh you're
1: kidding there. i recorded all that stuff
0: Oh, which is amazing and I I went to the party um, at the ma- at the original mask and was able to right. take it to take a chunk of the wall so I do have that. So
1: <laughs> me too. You know, I, yes,
0: you know, for me it's like I get to be a bit, a bit of a fanboy with you and I get to ask you it's as you were as you were recording all of that music uh well, of course nobody knows they're creating history when they're in the middle of it but like what were like the greatest challenges of trying to capture that music? Obviously, you are, you must have been working on you know limited budgets and all that, and maybe you could just kind of like walk me through how you pulled it off.
1: Sure, I'll be glad to. But I just wanted to backtrack a little bit. I found it interesting that in the book 1970, which covers the entire, really the whole decade, um, mm-hmm. your chapter and mine were sort of uh, like one was right after the other, and they're almost like bookends, because I'm telling the first half of that story, and then you tell the second half, when a lot of the bands and the sort of the rockabilly resurgence uh, came Mm -hmm. along, and a lot of the Chinatown stuff started to kick off really, really furiously. And you fell in love with the band X, which was having their Mm -hmm. heyday right about that time. They were playing every club in town, and they pretty much took over the town right in the early uh, 1980s. So, yeah, the the book really, really uh, sums up those experiences. You are familiar to me, but I wasn't sure if we'd met before personally or what, but uh, your name was familiar, and then I realized you were uh, Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy Circus, Hip Parade, all that stuff. I mean, those were the magazines that we were looking at in the early punk days. We, that was before the Internet era, and we were all, like, going to the news racks to find out what was going on in New York and in England. And that's kind of how punk first kind of filtered over to uh, L.A. in the early um, mid-70s, I guess you could say. And, uh, you know, very early on, the, the Ramones came and played at the Whiskey A Go-Go, a famous Sunset Ship Club. The audience, was it was practically nobody there, but, um, you know, a few of us showed up there. The Weirdos were playing that same show, and it was like my first punk show. I just flipped. So that's kind of how I got involved. I immediately had to join a band. And uh, my friend, Joe Nannini who ended up eventually playing for Wall of Voodoo, he uh, and I had known each other for several years. And he was a drummer, and he got me into the initial, you know, when the Bags first began. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, with the Bags, those girls were so popular in the scene, I got to meet everyone very, very quickly and become, you know, you know quite popular myself. With that, I went on to join other bands. And as I, in answer to your question, as I started playing in bands, I had a little bit of recording experience, not very much. There was a recording studio called Artist Recording Studio that had been directly across the street from the mask when the mask Mm -hmm. first opened. Um, And I was sleeping on the floor of the shop in the Artist Recording Studio learning how to engineer like any good studio rat would do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, eventually migrated to the floor of the mask. But uh, in those days, I had, you know, a little bit of experience recording mariachi, funk, disco, which was kind of what was prevalent in those days. And there was no hard rock. So, um, you know, luckily punk rock came along and changed all of that. So I started spreading the word in the mask because that was the house. PA, sound guy, and also sort of like, you know, janitor. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes I would Um, see. I started spreading the word that I was a record producer, something I'd never actually done. I'd only kind of heard about record producers. And Darby Crash tapped me on the shoulder when they go in his typical style, you a producer, produce the germs. So I asked him, like, well, what's going on? And he said, well, Slash Magazine, We all adored Slash Magazine. Right. That was the, sort of the mouthpiece of, of punk in those days. Um, was putting out their first single, and it was going to be The Germs, and they wanted me to produce it. So I had Slash's blessing, I had The Germs' blessing, and, of course, my blessing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> very happily waltzed into a, I think it was a $5 an hour studio <laughs> in the basement of an old security Pacific bank on Hollywood Boulevard. That's pretty much how we did it. Those days, we just walked from one place to another on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, You know, very pre-internet. Not many of us had cars. If you lived kind of in the neighborhood, that was pretty much how it went down. The scene was small. It was 40 to 100 people, you know. So the challenge is, I mean, the $5 an hour studio, that's challenge number one, is that we had five hours to record a single. So we recorded the No God single with lexicon devil mm-hmm. um uh and uh you know we had to do it very fast darby gave me my first sort of taste of punk rock recording because at the end of his vocal performance he said that's it and then uh, when i went to mix it i was going to take that little section that the that's it at the end out and he goes no i want to keep that I'm no are you kidding i want to fade it out because I was you know i was still used to what little engineering i knew about he goes, right. no, 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 that's what we want, you know? And I said, okay. And I thought he was kind of dumb, but, you know, no problem. The Germans were really kind of fun kids in those days. They were very young and very excited about just, you know, being in a band. And so was I. I loved the scene. I had a little bit of a glimpse into something that uh, is not well known, but at Artist Recording Studio, the owner of that place was a scam artist. He had these nursing homes up north where he – starved his patients, his elderly patients, and collected all their Social Security checks. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, he had four or five different scams going. And he used to sell, like, uh, you know, shares to the studio. And then he was running two sets of books. And then he would, uh, you know, when the studio, you know, on the books was failing, he would buy the p- partners out, you know, at just a, a huge discount. So he was had a running ad in the L.A. Times for partners to the studio And then the third scam that he had going was something that he called investment securities, and apparently it was a huge tax write-off in the mid '70s. And you know, a label or a private investor could make a, you know, like a sound recording, a a record, um, and uh, if it flopped, they could write off the cost of it. They could amortize it just like a house over seven years. So it was a really juicy write-off, and I have a feeling that that had a lot to do with why. Uh, (laughs) You know, artists weren't getting signed in those days. So it was, you know, mid-70s, as you probably understand, was just a vacuum, a cultural vacuum. There was nothing going on in L.A. till punk rock hit. It was very, very hard to find gigs. The whiskey had been closed for a few years before it reopened. And so, you know, I was aware of this thing, this investment securities thing. The way that that worked was that a doctor or a lawyer or somebody could – go to a recording studio recording studios always have these uh, tapes, these master tapes that don't get paid for, so they just sit on the shelf. They make a like a little secret deal with the owner of the studio to uh, you know put a synthesizer on there, modernize the vocal or something, do a new mix, and then they could buy this master so you know they would buy the master from you know my Scammy studio that I worked at um, for like a thousand dollars. And then go to a record company executive, a friend of theirs, and have them write up a thing that said yes, this has commercial potential, you know, and, and get a fake invoice from the studio, a bill for like ten thousand or even like you know fifty thousand dollars. So they paid ten thousand dollars. They got a letter from a, you know a, a somebody official, and then and then uh, they got a fake bill for like you know fifty thousand or twenty thousand dollars. Now that was the new value of this recording. They put the record on the shelf, you know, on their shelf, and then they would amortize this fifty grand, saying that they'd taken a loss. So it was very, very easy to write off losses. And I believe the record companies were in on this too, but you know, on a smaller level I got a whiff of it through this investment security scam that the studio was running. And um I've spoken about this before, but I believe that that had a lot to do with what was going on in the mid '70s, and also why some very very promising acts, such as you know the new punk rock thing that was starting to happen, like in the later '70s, uh, why those bands never got signed, and only the cutest bands like the uh, you know the Dickies and you know X was a pretty safe band, a wonderful band, but a pretty safe band. So you know, and Slash had something to do with that too. So. It was complicated. It was very, very hard. I was personally actually, uh, you know, you mentioned that, you know, nobody really knew what was going on. I was older than some of the other people in the scene. I was pushing 30. So I was actually, I did have a sense of history because I had already uh, had quite a, a you know, career in the 60s as a student activist. So I was aware that this was kind of a wave that happens only once every, you know, 10 years or so, and that I was right in the middle of it. And that if And because of the investment security scam, I also had this, you know, creepy feeling that if I didn't record these bands, nobody would. So I made it really a labor of love. I mean, it was not like a big moneymaker. It was enough to kind of pay my bread and butter, you know, lunch money. But, you know, I never made much money, a couple hundred bucks, you know, on, you know, each of the records that I made. I've made over a hundred indie records, especially punk rock records back in those days. And, you know, only the Dead Kennedys really made money for me. So... It was hard you know when we recorded the dead kennedys i went up to uh, san francisco and Tewksbury had an amazing collection of microphones that was when i first discovered how these ancient vintage german tube microphones sound fantastic we used one of those on the offer's voice he sounded incredible like a roaring lion through that so of course that got me excited but the studio had this ancient you know ampex tape machine and the brakes on the machine were broken so literally you know, there's a the way that you can rock the tape back and forth so it slows down a bit by hitting rewind and fast forward. But, you know, mm-hmm. to actually stop it I had to use my bare hands. And uh I got like some real big stabs on my palms from doing that. So who knows, holiday Cambodia could have actually gotten the tape could have just melted in my hands but it didn't. And it came out as kind of like you know, the the germs thing got me notoriety. With enough to start getting other bands interested. Mm -hmm. A lot of people liked that record. But Holiday in Cambodia was also released in England on Cherry Red Records. And there was a fantastic mastering engineer named Porky Prime Cuts, who did an incredible job on it. And it just sounded like thunder. So when that single, the 12-inch single, came back to the United States, it was on. Everybody knew about me and Black Flag and many other bands contacted me after that. I also did the uh, live sound for the Screamers through their whole 80s. I wish I could have recorded right. them, but they were such snobs, you know. So that's basically that's basically what it was about, you know. It was kind of a very fast moving time. I was aware that uh, you know I had to do something, or perhaps no one else would be able to, and uh, that's how it began. You
0: know, um you mentioned um, the screamers in your chapter, and I uh, I have a mention of them also because. They were an insanely great band. Of course, they never put out an album. I did buy recently, a couple of years ago, uh, it's a, it's all their demos. And did you record those demos?
1: Yeah, but unfortunately something happened to Master Tape, and what you hear on that bootleg is a, tra- a, a cassette copy of a cassette copy of a cassette copy. So it's like, you know, really bad quality. But I did a beautiful demo in Paul Rossler's, uh, 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 garage in Van Nuys where they used to rehearse and mm-hmm. uh, Paul Rossler and I were very good friends I actually got him into the Screamers and uh, you know I was dating his, uh, his sister Kira at the time and you know we were all kind of a little family so um, you know I made those demos but unfortunately they really don't sound like you know Renee Blonder got a hold of that band and he was a video artist I guess you could say because he made one pretty fabulous movie called Massacre at Central High Um, but, uh, he was a big old stupid alcoholic clown and he really did a lot of damage to that band because he sort of, so them into thinking that they were going to be a big video band. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, that didn't happen fast enough. The MTV era didn't quite arrive when the screamers were expected. We were holding out for a big record deal and it never transpired. So I wanted to record them, but I never got a chance to
0: really it's really a shame a lot of so I mean as history goes most people will never have heard of the screamers but they were they were in they were in the front line of great bands. I mean like when they would play the whiskey it was like three sold out shows in a row. I mean that's the way it went for them. Yep. I actually saw them back in New York it, I think it was the summer of nineteen seventy nine after I would moved out here. I went back just for a vacation and they played at that club Hurrah with Robert Fripp on guitar. And yes i mixed that,
1: we, that show i remember that i was the roadie at the time and i did that tour with him oh, robert rip wow. was a gentleman it was really really uh inspiring because of course he was one of my heroes, heroes from the early 70s the days of red and king crimson you know so uh you know that, that was one of those moments that just you know you just live for those moments
0: it was really ultra special so um yeah you know and then all the bands started getting deals uh Things change. I mean, I I did love the diversity because, you know, like aside from, you know, the edgier side of the musical spectrum, then there were bands like uh, The Last, The Plimsouls, Gary Valentine, and The No. And for me, it was really just amazing. Like you, it it was like there was five genres happening, you know, not to mention that, you know, Wall of Voodoo, which uh, was going on. And then. Also, too, what I thought was really interesting about Los Angeles music, there were more women in bands than there were in the New York bands. I mean, obviously the New York bands had, you know, I mean, it's, it's Patty Smith, it's uh, it's Deborah Harry, and and that gal Annie Golden from the Shirts. But when I got to Los Angeles, you know, whether it was, obvi- you know, obviously X, there was the Bags, the Alley Cats. Uh, women had more sway. Uh, or influence on the scene and i I took note of that, and also too um the New York bands didn't have any Hispanics in them and when I got to Los Angeles you could you know you could feel like the influence and of course the plugs would come uh so Los Angeles doesn't always you know it's always kicked down a notch, it doesn't get you know the front line of you know the New York City bands, but the diversity that was here and the talent is just amazing and it's always great that when a book like this comes along that there is that opportunity to sing some praises and look back and see what was achieved, uh, which is great. So at the time, I was working – so I uh, I got here, and I got a job at a PR company, and I was doing you know, completely, utterly mainstream publicity during the day for people like uh, Leif Garrett, Hall & Oates, Eddie Rabbit, Dolly Parton all of that kind of stuff, and that's how I learned the craft of PR. But at night, and I lived right over on Norton near Fairfax, so the Starwood was walking distance, which was amazing for me. And, you know, Tuesdays and Wednesday nights, uh, you know, the punk or new wave nights with Rodney Bingenheimer were just uh, remarkable. They were – the the great bands played, and then Rodney would be playing – the Los Angeles records that were coming on his new wave night that he was, I remember, you know, him playing like for the first time, the B 52s, which was sort of emblematic as the scene is growing nationally. And that was, uh, th- that was really special. And uh, these days, you know, the the scene is so different. I mean, it happens more on the internet. I don't know if there's as huge of a fraternity now as there was then. um, I mean, I know there are, you know, obviously the Echo Park bands, uh, Silver Lake. Um, I, I don't, I just, I don't know if if the fraternity is as great as it was then. And I think that fraternity really helped make that scene. Um, and but as you said earlier, like that only comes along once in a while. And that was great that you actually you noticed it and you knew that you had to step up and produce it because. Um, a lot of people don't realize like when greatness happens, like it may not happen again for another 15, 20 or, or however many years. So uh, Yes, that's so I absolutely. Think,
1: uh,
0: yeah. And the thing about Los Angeles too that was amazing to me and I think reflected it like especially in X's song, Sex and Dying in High Society and other songs of theirs, the divide between the people with money and the have-nots was so visible to me when I got here because, you know, in in New York City, of course, you know, there's Fifth Avenue, all right, and, but you don't really, there was no homeless then, you know, it was kind of Fifth Avenue, then there was the Bowery and, or the slums in in the South Bronx, but here, you know, you'd have all the, you know, all the punk kids, you know, on sunset, and then just right, literally a hundred feet behind the whiskey you're dealing with huge real estate and it's like the money was right there. And I thought that was really great. Like the, like the contrast was so, it was so pronounced between the have and have nots. And I really think that gave the music a lot of fire because it was, uh, it wasn't separate. Uh, It was right there. Like you saw the people with the money, they were all around you, you know, whether it was the expensive cars on sunset, um, and i and I really think that in, like when you don't have money and you start seeing it, I think there there's an obvious anger and rage and of, of just being cast aside. I mean, I think obviously X's song the unheard music and i and I really just think it propped up Los Angeles to have so much like adolescent fire. I don't think the New York bands had adolescent fire; it was coming more from a you know the the poetry uh You know, beatnik, uh, and, you know, and obviously the, you know, the dolls and velvets, it was, it was just, it was different. Maybe it was more cerebral, but the Los Angeles music really had adolescent fire, and I think that's what really separated it, and it kept me really interested, just like as a sociology student. It was like, wow, check this. So that was a, those were, uh, those were those really special times and just the the divide. I mean, back then, I mean, I lived on Norton in a studio for $230, a huge studio, $230 a month. (laughs) Now, you know, the, the divide between what one salary and cost of living is and the rent, it's so wide. Then it was, it was much more narrow. Uh, it was an it was an interesting time. Like you can live in the middle of it. That was possible for people to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, in your case, even you know, you didn't have you know you didn't have cars and things like that. But you were all in the middle of it. Uh, the thing about New York City, too, aside from some of the people who live there, I mean, the Ramones came from Queens. The Dictators came from my borough of the Bronx. So there was more. Love uh, the
1: Dictators.
0: Yeah, they. It's kind of like they're the missing link between the Dolls and the Ramones, actually. Yes. And, but then you know, David, you know, David Bowie used to say, "It's not who does it first, it's who does it second. Because the people <laughs> who do it first. Yeah. He well, he knew. I mean, Lou Reed was first, so when he said it, he was like, he was just saying, like, I, I'm the second, and. I used to work with him. I was his publicist for 22 years, from '91 right. up until the end of 2012. And oh. so, yeah, he would—he'd always say things like that. It's like you got to – well, You know, I mean, obviously, the people who do it first are spending all of their time not only creating but cutting the path. And
1: that's
0: yeah, they're the sacrifice in- victims. Yep. Yep. Well, sacrifice. Yeah so um so there is uh so there there's all that happening and i uh so like my you know my chapter is called merging worlds and uh again it was it was sort of like that new york kid coming into what for me was a playground of los angeles and it kind of it really helped make me who i was and i i love coming up with really you know crazy pr stunts and a lot of that comes from like the you know the guerrilla tactics of what you'd see of like you know struggling punk bands would do to get attention and like i i was around it a lot and it was like you know especially being a publicist it's like it's my job to stop the traffic you know that's what i got to do totally on a good day i saw some very clever
1: uh, stuff in your bio yes i didn't mean to interrupt that i just saw some very clever publicity in your bio
0: thanks you know i what so I, I just try to do, and when I mean I, I did a, a stunt uh, about uh, less than ten years ago, maybe it was more for Corn, and their album was called See You on the Other Side, and I just said well, we should do a graveside press conference, and we did it at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery before it was <laughs> sort of used as a venue, and then. Yeah. Uh, and then it became a a party at the mausoleum afterwards and Axel Rose came to it and that was like his first public sighting like in 6 or 8 years at the time how perfect he knew to come out to a cemetery for his first public outing um but again yeah. a lot of like those kind of ideas were just formed like in the days of just watching all the just watching all the punk bands and of people like how are we going to get attention what are we going to do and so those uh those were you know the great the great days of of los angeles and it's there and it's like i'm happy this book not only for the music world but just other aspects and the other chapters in this book really uh zero into what la was it was uh it was different i mean what 1980 reagan comes in everything everything kind of changes after that um now no one can afford to live in Los Angeles, which is the great thing. I saw something at the LAist uh, site the other day saying that they've been charting like millennials for like the last 10 years, and they find that people have either left or don't even come here. They go to uh, Austin, Omaha, uh, Charlotte, just other cities where it's affordable and people can live. So that's maybe that's also the reason maybe – not a million bands. I mean, I know there's a million bands here, but people came here. Also, it was easier to come here than it is now. Now it's an expensive proposition. So, yes. Well,
1: a lot, of, a lot has changed. I mean, you're certainly right about that. It's like two thirds of your income just to live here now, and that's crazy. I mean, how do you eat? You know. But uh, you touched on a couple of amazing points that were real really important about why it was what it was i mean there was a street scene first of all is that nowadays there really isn't any, you know hanging out in the same way you don't go to a club to hang out you go onto the internet to see what's going on and uh, so there's a lot less you know bars and clubs that kind of action what you said about women uh that was the beginning of the kind of the revolution in music where Mm -hmm. women got full access to everything and became really really part of the part of the band scene not just the audience scene i mean the go-go's were sweet friends of mine you know and almost every band had a Mm. female in it it was really considered like to be like kind of prestigious to have a girl in your band and so we were doing a lot of like you know teaching girls also how to play like um charlotte Caffey had wonderful skills as a keyboard player but uh joe ramirez and i really really coached her on bass guitar and then suddenly she picked up guitar and boom, the Go Go's. You know, that's kind of how it went. It was really, really, really rapidly forming. And like what I liked about your story, that was so cool, was it really, really showed the sort of the bubble when it sort of mushroomed, not into the mainstream, but sort of just became universal across town. L. A. became a big music town again. There were, you know, six or seven clubs going uh, every weekend with, you know, all the local bands, you know, I mean, I remember trying to get those gigs and, you know, it was, it was competitive and that's good because what was happening was there was a lot of good places to go see bands and sometimes, you know, new bands would come out. So that was like fun to spin offs would happen. That was another really great thing about it. But, you know, the difference mm-hmm. in technology, when you had to actually go out and have a street scene where your friends were sort of local and then where there was like this, you know, mass influx of women musicians, which made the scene honestly that much more fun because suddenly the girls were right there. And, uh, you know, that's, there's a lot of really great things about that. You know, there was a lot more dates to choose from. And there was these uh, musician girls, like, you know, real, you know, hotties with a lot of attitude, you know, I love that. And, uh, yeah, and you know, it's
0: just, it's, it's true. They, they looked badass, like, uh, the gal from it was like Alice from the uh the bags right and also
1: uh, Patricia, yeah.
0: Patricia like she yeah. she she looked like Elvira before Elvira right yep i think gorgeous she yeah she, and she was amazing and then of course you know we shouldn't forget the great runaways um as being as as being pivotal too as, as gals with instruments i think because Kim Fowley assembled them. They're they're maybe thought of as not as do-it-yourself, although they were. I mean, they they were they taught themselves how to play. So always have to. Oh, look. I have
1: a, I have a lot to say about about the Runaways yeah. because um, simply because the um, we're doing this uh, uh, three-part documentary film series about the roots of Hollywood punk because the Hollywood punk story, as you were explaining, never really got told properly. New York had its own publicity machine, and they really supported their bands. L.A., like I said, in the shadow of the music industry, tried to bury its punk rockers until hardcore kind of made it universal because Black Flag and those guys went out and toured the country on their own and got the word out. But uh, the Hollywood scene, which was the proto pivotal scene, kind of like, you know, got swept under the rug, unfortunately, because it was a very dynamic and diverse scene. But Kim Fowley... And the Runaways show up again and, and again and again in these interviews. We've interviewed, you know, like close to 50 people now from the, you know, early, mm-hmm. early Hollywood scene. And uh, as it turns out, Kim Fowley and Roddy Bingenheimer, Kim Fowley has been, you know, kind of sometimes reviled, you know. Right. And uh, a lot of people say, you know, different things about him. But the fact was that he was a Snaghali and he was able to put together the Runaways we went and saw The Runaways even before we were in punk rock bands. Very, very close. There was this period of time that I like to call The Cusp. That's what we're calling it in our movie. Um, the Cusp was sort of like the Zolar X, Motels, Pop. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of bands that were renting halls, but there was no clubs yet. There wasn't much hard rock in L.A. Well, suddenly The Runaways show up, but we go see them at the Whiskey, all the sort of proto-punks that we had just, you know, started seeing bands. Um, you know, playing kind of a harder style of music. And, you know, there was things you could say about The Runaways, but Sherry Curry, of course, was like a little sex bomb. But more importantly, much, much more importantly to the punks, we all fell in love with Joan Jett. She lived right off of Sunset Boulevard in a little, I forget what street where that was, probably pretty close to where you were living, Um And uh, all of us, the germs, I think Darby was living in the same apartment with her and we would go get drunk there all the time. So we already kind of knew who she was when the runaways came out and played. Joe, Chet, that girl, she was like all of like 16 or something. Yeah. He can major booty. I mean, that girl could play the guitar just so tough, you know, just like a little dyke, you know, I mean, God bless her. And uh, that inspired all of us she had this leather jacket she was cute she was playing good you know the rest of the band mixed reviews i would say but uh, we loved sherry because she was cute and we loved joan because she played so good and she was so tough so you know those were the days when everybody kind of knew each other your best friend was also your hero when they went on stage you know or you know you might live in an apartment building with you know three bands and you know they're your friends at the apartment but when they go on stage they're your folk heroes so that's pretty much how it went I remember mm. that uh, Runaways and Kim Fowley a lot of the shows that he created were pivotal and so you got to give credit where credit is due you know he's dead now we got a great interview with him too on his deathbed but uh, wow you know he's he was he's really something he was like a, you know kind of the whole spectrum like from psycho creepo to uh, you know genius
0: yeah, he uh, he captured it. Like one of my great memories, I moved to Los Angeles and as I said I was living on Norton so I, I went to the uh the Rite Aid or whatever it was called, Thrifty Drug at uh Fairfax and Sunset and next to me online was Kim Fowley. and of course I couldn't look I, I couldn't help but look to see what he was buying. It was a bottle of, you know, so, something so he could bleach his hair. It was great. That was like my introduction to Los Angeles in the first week. It was just it was great. It was like one of those great things, like it just came right from a movie and that was fantastic. So uh well this has been really great and I I know we've been going for like about I guess around thirty five minutes, so I think that's good and crisp. I'll reach out to you separately on email. I'd I'd love to meet you. And
1: Yeah, same here. I when I saw when I saw your uh your background and your writing background. I, I'm sure that I you know, followed a lot of your articles in Rolling Stone, for example. And also, yeah. your, you know, the PR Maven, I'd be very interested in talking to you about these movies.
0: I'll reach out to you and maybe we can get, I have some travel coming up, uh, so maybe we can get together in December at some point. So I'll hit you on an email separately from this and we'll come up with something. Maybe we could just, we could meet somewhere downtown for dinner one night and just sort of go for it.
1: Oh, that would rock. I would love that. Thank you so much.
0: All right. Sure. So let's keep that in the plan. All right, Andrew, thanks for uh, hooking Gaze and I up for this podcast. And uh, there you go. See you all later.
1: Okay. See
0: you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.